Peace be upon you. So common belief among many traditionalists is that the companions, the Sahaba, were among the most righteous and therefore should be considered absolutely trustworthy in their testimonies. Much of this uh, understanding comes from the following uh, hadith or you know, some rendition of this. This is in Sahih Bukhari 6429 where it says that the Prophet said, the best people are those of my generation and then those who will come after them, the next generation, and then those who will come after them, the following generation. And from this, most Sunnis, they believe that because they're deemed the best generation, that they're the most righteous, that they can't do any wrong. And you'll see other sources uh, among Sunni scholars make the following claim. So this one reads, all of the companions are trustworthy. Those who were involved in afflictions, fitna, uh, and other than them, according to the consensus of the scholars. And here's another quote. It says, uh, Al-Sunnah have unanimously agreed that all of them, the Sahaba, are trustworthy. And no one opposed to this except some deviance amongst the innovators. So if you think that there's anything flawed with the uh, uh, companions, the Sahaba, therefore you're an innovator. And lastly, in this quote, it reads, Every hadith that has a chain of narration that is connected between the one who reported it and the prophet is not to be acted upon until first having affirmed the trustworthiness and reliability of all the narrators in the chain. It is an obligation to investigate all of their conditions except for the sahaba, the companions, uh, who raises it to or attributes the hadith to the prophet. So they're saying everyone else has to be subject to scrutiny with the exception of the companions. We have to just accept that they're flawless human beings, that they're the best human beings, that any testimony that's attributed to them has to be accepted without rigor. So why such a hardline stance towards the uh, infallibility of the companions, that their word is as good as the prophet's word, who's as good as God's word? Uh, where did this come from? There is this quote, this is in Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World by Jonathan Brown on page uh, uh, 302. So it reads about this event that took place during the Abbasid dynasty. It says, in an audience before the Abbasid Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, the early Sunni, Umar bin Habib, responded to the Mutazilite and al-Aray arguments regarding the reliability of Abu Huraira and claimed that if one opened the door to criticizing the companions of the Prophet, Muslims would lose the whole Sharia. So they knew that if the credibility of someone as silly and ridiculous as Abu Huraira was scrutinized, then that means the entire Sharia goes to waste. So they have to maintain the absolute unequivocal uh, certainty that these people were beyond criticism, that they were perfect human beings. Now, what's funny is we know from their own history that they highly disputed amongst one another regarding what it was that supposedly the prophet has said that is attributed to them. And then secondly, they had disputes regarding the understanding of the verses of the Quran. And thirdly, they try to kill each other. I mean, Aisha, Talaha, and Zubair wage war against Ali, right? These were not people who were all on the same page. They literally went to war and killed one another. So we're supposed to think that they're beyond reproach. They're beyond the aspect of criticizing. You know, should we even accept any testimony from them, even if we can prove that they actually made this statement? So God willing, in this episode, we're going to see what the Quran has to say regarding the companions. That yes, some of them were among the most righteous, but also some of them were the worst, most evil people imaginable. And this is a fact. God says that the lowest pit of hell is full of hypocrites. 
And it's a fact that in the Quran, a good number of the companions were hypocrites. And it's worth defining what is a companion. So this is interesting. This puts traditionalists in a bind regarding how they even define companion. So if they make this too restrictive, then while it would provide more integrity for their claims that, hey, the companions were righteous and stuff, it has the reverse effect where it hurts the credibility of the traditions they narrate. This is because traditionalists base their entire credibility of their religion on the chain of transmitters, the Isnad, for their narrations. The credibility of the Isnad is predominantly based on two factors. The perceived reliability of the transmitter and the degrees of separation from the prophet to the transmitter. This has caused shady practices among scholars of Hadith to make the transmitters they transmit from appear more reliable by hiding their weaknesses, their defects, while finding ways to reduce the length of the Asnad for the Hadith they narrate. The outcome of this regarding the companions is twofold. Firstly, they are collectively incentivized to deem all companions as trustworthy. By giving carte blanche trustworthiness status to all the companions, they created another loophole. A hadith that is missing a narrator between the successor to the prophet, meaning to not include the companion in the chain of transmitters, is considered mursal. So it's, it's missing a link. Mursal hadith are deemed defective and would hurt the ranking of a hadith. Such hadith would not be ranked as sahih, authentic, and would be rated at best hasan, good, and realistically most likely daif. However, this concept does not apply to narrations among the companions. This means that if a companion heard a statement from another companion regarding something the Prophet supposedly said and not the Prophet himself, then this hadith would not be considered defective and could be categorized as sahih. Hadith scholars like Bukhari and Muslim used the vast majority of these kinds of hadith in their sahih compilations. This was acceptable among companions because they are considered absolutely trustworthy in their narrations, as we saw from the quotes before. The second devious action that Sunnis made regarding the companions was to define who the companions were as broadly as they could to encompass as many people in this category as possible. Because of this, most traditionalists define a companion as anyone who saw the messenger while he was alive and died a Muslim. As Bukhari states in his Sahih compilations, says, a companion is anyone who saw the Prophet even for a moment while a believer and who then died as a Muslim. So Sunnis want to make this blanket of who's uh, considered a companion as broad as possible. And the reason for doing this is because it allows them to basically extend that time period to as late as possible. So anyone that they can narrate to that is considered a companion that saw the Prophet was a Muslim, even if they were an infant and died as a believer, they can comfortably transmit from that person as if he heard it directly from the Prophet. Now you could see how, again, this, this games the entire system. Now what's funny is they do the same thing for the next generation, the Tabi'un, right? You would think that the from the companions to the Tabi'un would be one generation. But realistically, this is more like three, four generations between one and the other. Because if the requirement is only that they saw one another, therefore, you can make this camp way bigger. So you'll see that the title for companions might extend 
for as much as 80 to 100 years after the death of the Prophet. And anyone who saw that individual then becomes the Tabi'un. And then that extends for again another 100 years until the last Tabi'un dies. And then after that, you have the Tabi Tabi'un. So this gives the illusion that not as much time has passed. So it might seem like, oh, it's you know between the companions and the Tabi'un that it's just one generation. Realistically, this is more like three, four generations. Limiting the term broadly allowed traditionalists to narrate from companions for many years after the Prophet's death. And since scholars consider it acceptable for companions to narrate from the Prophet even if they didn't hear it directly from him without providing their sources, this allowed for much shorter isnads for their narrations. While Sunni scholars claim that the companions are absolutely trustworthy and the testimony coming from them should be accepted without reservation, what does the Quran have to say regarding this matter? Should the testimony of anyone who's just simply deemed a companion by this most broad definition have their testimony accepted without reservation? So let's look at examples in the Quran regarding the trustworthiness of the companions. The Quran informs us that if anyone accuses a married person of adultery and fails to produce four witnesses, they shall be lashed 80 times and then uh, secondly, no testimony should ever be accepted from them. It reads in Surah 24 verse 4, it says, Those who accuse married women of adultery then fail to produce four witnesses. You shall whip them 80 lashes and do not accept any testimony from them. They are wicked. Mean that if someone makes such an accusation against a pious woman, no testimony from them should ever be accepted. In the same surah, just a few verses ahead, we read that the Quran informs us that a gang among the Prophet's companions produced a big lie. From the context of the verses, we can determine that these people accused a pious woman of adultery. Now, if you go to the Hadith sources, they say that this is the lie against Aisha. They accused her of adultery. So in 2411, it says, a gang among you produced a big lie. Do not think that it was good for you. Instead, it was bad for you. Meanwhile, each one of them has earned his share of the guilt. As for the one who initiated the whole incident, he has incurred a terrible retribution. And it continues in 2412, it says, when you heard it, the believing men and believing women should have had better thoughts about themselves and should have said, this is obviously a big lie. So it's saying that this isn't some gang that isn't a believer. These are believers. That a gang among the believers made this statement. And God is telling them that when they heard this, their response should have been, this is obviously a big lie. But this is not what this gang of believers did. And it continues in 24.13. It says, only if they produced four witnesses, may you believe them. If they fail to produce the witnesses, then they are according to God liars. And we know from the previous verse that if they accused a righteous woman of adultery, just like it's specifying in this verse, that none of their testimonies should ever be accepted. God calls the people who propagated and initiated this lie liars. And since they were unable to produce four witnesses for their false claim, None of their testimonies should ever be accepted. There's no hadith that provides the names of each of these companions. So we have no way of knowing which companions' testimonies should never be accepted. This becomes very questionable in the case of knowing which hadith 
from which companion can be accepted even if they testified to that statement from the Prophet and the Hadith statement actually came from that companion. That said, can we make any deductions regarding the number of individuals implicated in this lie? You know, was this a small gang? Was it a medium-sized gang? Was it fringe? So by deducing this, we can figure out how many of the companions were implicated by this big lie and therefore should not have their testimony ever accepted. The word for gang used in this verse is usbatun. The root of this word occurs five times in the Quran. Four occurrences are in the context of a group of people and one time is with a different meaning regarding difficult. If we look at these three other occurrences, so we have this in Surah 24 verse 11 where it says, a gang among you produced a big lie. Can we deduct how big of a group this was? How big of a gang are we dealing with? The first occurrence of this word occurs in chapter 12 verse 8. In this verse, in the context of the brothers of Joseph, they use this word to indicate that they are the larger group, that they are in the majority compared to Joseph and his brother. So it reads in Surah 12 verse 8, it says, They said, Joseph and his brother are favored by our father, and we are in the majority. And the word that's used here is the exact same word used in 2411, Usbatun. Indeed, our father is far astray. So this is indicating that this word for gang is not a small group. It's actually the majority of the believers made this false implication against a righteous person accusing them of adultery. The second occurrence of this word is just a few verses ahead in chapter 12, verse 4. We see that when Joseph's brothers are discussing with Jacob regarding allowing uh, Jacob to give Joseph permission to come with them, and Jacob responds that he's concerned that he might get devoured by the wolf, this is the response from the brothers. It says, they said, so this is Surah 12, verse 14, they said, indeed, if the wolf devours him with so many of us around, then we are really losers. Again, indicating that the brothers are in the majority compared to this one lone wolf. So it's not only that they're a majority in both these instances, we see that it's a large percentage of the population is what's in this word, usbatun. And we see the last usage of this word in the context of Karun, the slave driver. The verse that uses this word indicates that the keys to his treasure were so heavy that it would take a large group of men with great strength to be able to lift them. And again, we see the same word, Usbatun, is meant to signify a large group and not a small one. So in 2876, it says, Garun, the slave driver was one of Moses' people who betrayed them and oppressed them. We gave him so many treasures that the keys thereof were heavy for a band of men possessing great strength. His people said to him, do not be so arrogant. God does not love those who are arrogant. So three times we see that this three other occurrences of this word in this context always signifies a large group, the disproportionate majority of a group. So from this, we can deduce that in 2411, when it discusses a gang among you, this is not a small group, but that this constituted the majority of the companions and believers at that time. 
Since this surah is understood to have been revealed in Medina after the battle of the parties and is the 102nd revelation, this would mean that the number of companions impacted by this would be much larger than if it was an early revelation. Based on this information, the testimonies of the vast majority of companions should be highly suspect that by the verses of the Quran, we should not accept the testimonies attributed to the companions until we can verify were they part of this group or not. Because this is a direct commandment from God that someone who accuses someone of adultery and fails to produce four witnesses like was done by the majority of the believing companions at this time, that their testimony should never be accepted. But is that the only thing we have regarding the companions? The Quran further contradicts this narrative regarding the infallibility of the companions. In Surah 9, Ultimatum, Abaraha, or also Toba, Repentance, was the last major revelation given to the Prophet. This can be deduced from the content of the Surah, which is indicates that it was revealed shortly before the end of the Prophet's life. Yet this surah shows that even this late in the stage of the Prophet's life, in the final verses of this surah, it warns the Prophet regarding the hypocrite companions amongst him and that he was not able to even identify them, meaning at the last year of his life, he was incapable, he did not know which of his companions were actually hypocrites. In Surah 9, verse 101, it reads, Among the Arabs around you, there are hypocrites. Also among the city dwellers, there are those who are accustomed to hypocrisy. You do not know them, but we know them. We will double the retribution for them. Then they end up committed to a terrible retribution. So if the Prophet didn't know which of the companions amongst his own people were hypocrites, how less likely is it that later generations could make these deductions. As if that isn't challenging enough, we have to compound this, that the earliest books of documenting the biographies of Hadith transmitters and their reliability, uh, this is known as Elm al-Rajal, were not created until the 3rd century Hijra. This means that these authors made claims about the reliability of transmitters who lived hundreds of years before them and potentially thousands of miles away in various regions of the Islamic world. If we continue reading Surah 9, we see the depravity of the companions' hypocrisy to the point that they were abusing the masjids by practicing idol worship and dividing the believers. It continues in Surah 9 verse 107, it says, There are those who abuse the masjid by practicing idol worship, dividing the believers, and providing comfort to those who oppose God and His Messenger. They solemnly swear our intentions are honorable. God bears witness that they are liars. So this final major revelation is telling the Prophet that even at this time and age, there are companions who are practicing idol worship at the masjids, and they're dividing the believers and providing comfort to those who oppose God and His Messenger. This is the definition of hypocrisy. Now, the surah ends with the dire warning for followers of the Quran about these companions and their hypocrisy, that their hearts have been diverted from God and the truth. It reads, starting from 9.124 through 127, it says, When a surah was revealed, some of them would say, Did this surah strengthen the faith of anyone among you? 
Indeed, it did strengthen the faith of those who believed and rejoiced in any revelation. As for those who harbored doubts in their hearts, it actually added unholiness to their unholiness, and they died as disbelievers. Do they not see that they suffer from exacting trials every year, once or twice? Yet they consistently fail to repent and fail to take heed. Whenever a surah was revealed, some of them would look at each other as if to say, Does anyone see you? Then they left. God has diverted their hearts, for they are people who do not comprehend. So this verse is telling us that a number of the companions died as disbelievers. That they had unholiness added to their unholiness of their hearts. So this is not looking good for the vast majority of companions. And we know from Surah 12 verse 106 that the majority of those who believe do not do so without committing idol worship. So to give blanket immunity to all the companions, that they are truthful, that they are the most upright, is absolutely absurd and it contradicts the Quran. God informs us that these people, these hypocrites among the Prophet that were unknown to the Prophet himself, that their destiny is hell. In Surah 9 verse 73 it says, O you prophets, strive against disbelievers and the hypocrites and be stern in dealing with them. Their destiny is hell. What a miserable abode. The Quran even provides the testimony of these companions who are destined for hell on the day of judgment, as well as the messenger's testimony against his people. In Surah 25 verse 27 through 30 we read, the day will come when the transgressor will bite his hands in anguish and say, At last, I wish I had followed the path with the messenger. At last, woe to me, I wish I did not take that person as a friend. He has led me away from the message after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. So here's a companion wishing that he followed the path with the messenger. And the word for with here, ma, it indicates to be in his presence. And this is the messenger's response against his companions who are going to be in hell. This is the messenger said, my Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. From these verses, I have no doubt that a good number of the companions, A, should never have their testimony accepted and B, are destined for hell. To say otherwise, to say that they were uh, beyond reproach, that they were perfect human beings, that they should not be scrutinized, is absolutely contradictory to the Quran. And the only reason they do this is because they, want, they know that the second that the integrity of the companions is questioned, their entire Sharia falls apart. So if someone says, hey, I have this hadith, it has this chain of transmitters, it goes back to this companion who heard it from the Prophet, that you have to accept it. Ask them to prove that this companion is trustworthy, right? One of the obvious pushbacks against this criticism of the companions is they say, well, look, the same companions who transmitted this hadith, even if you accept their testimony, uh, are the same individuals who transmitted the Quran. Now, what's grossly inaccurate with this comparison is that the Quran, unlike the hadith corpus, has been given the divine guarantee that it will be preserved. In Surah 15, verse 9, it reads, Absolutely, we have revealed the reminder, and absolutely, we will preserve it. So this is giving us a divine guarantee that God will preserve the Quran. Some argue that the word uh, zikr used in 15.9, the reminder, that this also encompasses the uh, hadith. Yet we see in the following verse that the word zikr uh, used in the Quran is in reference to the Quran itself, the kitab, and not some other source like the traditionalists claim. 
In Surah 21, verse 10, it says, We have sent down to you the scripture, Kitab, containing your dhikr, your reminder. Do you not understand? So this shows that the dhikr is not some external source. This is just another name for the Quran. And this understanding is also reinforced that in the verses we read from Surah 25, uh, verses 29 and 30, that it uses the exact same word, the dhikr. It says, uh, so just to recap, it says, he has led me away from the dhikr, the reminder, after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. And the messenger's response to this is, my Lord, my people have deserted this Quran, indicating that what he deserted, this reminder, was not the hadith, was not the sunnah, it was the Quran. So not only does the Hadith corpus not have this divine promise of preservation, but historically we see that many of the earliest companions, including the most prominent companions, Abu Bakr, Umar, Ali, uh, not only made an active effort to reduce the spread of Hadith besides the Quran, they also imprisoned people for spreading Hadith. They threatened people with punishment for spreading Hadith and even burned Hadith in mass. So, for instance, it's reported that Umar, during his uh, reign as caliph, did not allow the Prophet's companions to travel freely without the permission because he did not want them to propagate hadith. In the history of uh, Tabari, it reads that Umar said, Be exclusively devoted to the Quran and diminish the annotations of Muhammad. In another hadith, this is from Asad ibn Ibrahim from his father, that Umar detained ibn Masud, Abu al-Darada, and Abu Masud al-Ansari, saying to them, You have narrated hadith abundantly from the Messenger of Allah. It is reported that he had detained them in Medina, but they were set free by Uthman. And then we have a narration. This is attributed to Uthman. It says, I heard Uthman ibn Affan addressing the people from over the pulpit that it's unlawful for anyone to narrate any hadith he never heard of during the time of Abu Bakr and that of Omar. Verily, that which made me abstain from narrating from the Messenger of Allah was not to be amongst uh, the most conscious of his companions, but I heard him saying, uh, whoever ascribes to me something I never said, he shall verily occupy his abode in fire. Now, the reason I bring these up is not to give them credibility. It's to show that even in their own history, they know that the earliest companions were highly against Hadith. This concept of even having Hadith uh, uh, attributed to the Prophet as some sort of source of law this is a much later manifestation. You're talking about 200 years after the death of the Prophet that they started you know, collecting these hadith, canonizing it, which happened 500 years after the Prophet, and using these as sources of law over the Quran. So in addition to all this, right, all the reasons why we should be questioning anyone who claims to have uh, heard some statement from the Prophet because we don't know their credibility, right, that the uh, Quran is the only book we have from God that is telling us that it's going to be preserved, that God is going to maintain its integrity, that the Hadith have no authority in this. This is the man-made concoction. These are human beings trying to compete with God with creating a book. But we, we get another warning in the Quran. The Quran informs us that there are human and jinn devils who will entice people with fancy words in order to lead the people away from the Quran. So in 6112, uh, we read, We have permitted the enemies of every prophet, human, and jinn devils to inspire in each other fancy words in order to deceive. Had your Lord willed they would not have done it, you shall disregard them and their fabrications. This is to let the minds of those who do not believe in the hereafter listen to such fabrications and accept them, and thus expose their real convictions. So it's telling us that this is a system of God that God allows, permits human and jinn devils to create fancy words to deceive people and lead them away from his scripture. 
And it continues in 6.1.14, says, Shall I seek other than God as a source of law when he's revealed to you this book fully detailed? Those who receive the scripture recognize that it has been revealed from your Lord. Truthfully, you shall not harbor any doubt. The word of your Lord is complete in truth and justice. Nothing shall abrogate his words. He is the hearer, the omniscient. And then it gives us this warning, says, if you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. And the Arabic word used in this verse for conjecture is zan. And this is literally what they call hadith. Hadith, by definition, is conjecture. In the book, uh, Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in Medieval and Modern World by Professor Jonathan Brown on page 165 states, when Sunni legal theory matured in the 11th century, it was accepted that although Ahad non-massively transmitted hadith did not yield epistemological certainty, yaqeen, that the Prophet had made that statement, they did yield a very strong probability, zan. This was sufficient for fixing law and ritual. While almost all legal hadiths were Ahad, the Quran was epistemologically certain, massively transmitted from the time of the Prophet. So here they're specifying that their hadith, the vast majority of the hadith, and in all intents and purposes, all hadith are Ahad. The only hadith that we have as Motawatar is that of the Quran alone. So these scholars know that their hadith corpus is all zan, that it's all conjecture. And what does the Quran tell us about conjecture, right? In 6.116, as we read, it says, If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture, zan. They only guess. In Surah 6, verse 148, it says, The idol worshippers say, Had God willed, we would not practice idolatry, nor would our parents, nor would we prohibit anything. Thus did those before them disbelieve until they incurred our retribution. Say, do you have any proven knowledge that you can show us? You follow nothing but conjecture, zon. You only guess. The Quran consistently condemns this concept of building religious doctrine off guesswork, off conjecture. And by their definition, this is what the Hadith corpus is. It's conjecture. It's zon. And it repeats this in 1036 as most of them fall nothing but conjecture, zan. And conjecture is no substitute for the truth. God is fully aware of everything they do. And I just want to reread this last sentence from this uh, quote from the book. That it says, uh, while almost all legal hadiths were ahad, and he, he previously stated that ahad is zan, that it's conjecture, the Quran was epistemologically certain, yaqeen, massively transmitted, mutawatir, from the time of the Prophet. So to say that the Quran and the Hadith are transmitted in the same way, not only is this uh, uh, spiritually, Quranically inaccurate, because God tells us that the Quran is divinely preserved. Historically, this is inaccurate, and they know that. So it's interesting, in these verses, the Quran is equating those uh, human and jinn devils who are inspiring each other fancy words to deceive people, lead them away from the Quran, as those who are following conjecture. And this is literally what they call the Hadith corpus, that it's zon, that it's probabilistic information. So not only do we have supernatural forces guarding the Quran, we also are informed that there's supernatural forces that God is permitting human and jinn devils to go and inspire each other these fancy words to lead them astray from God's message. 
And this is reaffirmed in Surah 22, verse 52 through 53. It says, We did not send before you any messenger nor a prophet without having the devil interfere in his wishes. God then nullifies what the devil has done. God perfects his revelations. God is omniscient, most wise. He thus sets up the devil's scheme as a test for those who harbor doubts in their hearts and those whose hearts are hardened. The wicked must remain with the opposition. So the Quran is telling us that God is allowing this. This is part of the test. There's going to be some other source beside the Quran, and it's going to use all kinds of fancy words and jargon to lead people away from the true source, the truth, and to go and follow conjecture. A common understanding among traditionalists is that the Hadith are a source of divine revelation, wahi. If you read Shafi, he says that the Hadith and the Quran are one, uh, that the Sunnah explains the Quran, and you can't disassociate this. And this is uh, carried on with Hanbali. And transmitters and compilers of Hadith pawn these fabricated lies about the Prophet as a source of divine revelation. The Quran warns us against such actions and calls the people who do this the most evil creatures. In Surah 6 verse 93 it says, Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God? Or says, I have received divine inspiration, wahi when no such inspiration was given to him, or says, I can write the same as God's revelations. If only you could see the transgressors at the time of death, the angels will extend their hands to them, saying, let go of your souls. Today you have incurred a shameful retribution for saying about God other than the truth and for being too arrogant to accept his revelations. These Hadith compilers, Bukhari, Muslim, Termidi, this is what they're doing. They're claiming that what they received is divine inspiration, that it's wahi. And they're writing it with their own hands, claiming that these are God's revelations, compiling them into books and disseminating them among the masses. They are some of the worst, most despicable, evil creatures that ever lived. And I don't think they operated in a vacuum. As we saw in the previous verses, some of the companions, those who were the closest to the prophet in the camp of the believers, that God is telling us that their destiny is hell, that they were hypocrites, that they practiced idol worship in the masjids of God, that they divided the believers, that they diverted from the truth. And I have no doubt that there were evil companions who were spreading false information about the prophet, most notably Abu Huraira. And it reads in 541, it warns us about this, says, O oh, you messenger, do not be saddened by those who hasten to disbelieve among those who say we believe with their mouths while their hearts do not believe. This is among the Jews, some listen to lies. They listen to people who never met you and who distorted the words out of context. Then said, if you are given this, accept it. But if you are given anything different, beware. Whomever God wills to divert, you can do nothing to help him against God. God does not wish to cleanse their hearts. They have incurred humiliation in this world and in the hereafter, they will suffer a terrible retribution. We know that individuals like Abu Huraira, the most prolific narrator of Hadith, was heavily influenced by an individual by the name of Kab al-Abr, who's a proclaimed rabbi who infused all kinds of Jewish folklore inside the Hadith corpus. And God willing, in a future episode, we'll do a topic regarding the Israeliyat, that these are literally Jewish Talmudic stories that have been infused inside the Hadith corpus and being attributed to the Prophet. And the fact that we can trace this to this person narrating these lies about the Prophet, 
all their testimonies should be rejected because the only testimony we have that we can say definitively came from God himself to the prophet is the Quran alone. It reads in Surah 6, verse 19 through 21, it says, Say, whose testimony is the greatest? Say, God's. He is the witness between me and you that this Quran has been inspired to me to preach it to you and whomever it reaches. Indeed, you bear witness there's other gods beside God. Say, I do not testify as you do. There's only one God and I disown your idolatry. If we put up another source next to the source that God gave us of this Quran, some other source of law, we're setting up partners with God. In Surah 6, verse 121, it says, Do not eat from that upon which the name of God has not been mentioned, for it is an abomination. And then it says, The devils argue with you. If you obey them, you will be an idol worshiper. Meaning that if God gives you a commandment and you choose to go with some other source, then that source becomes your idol. So when it says here in Surah 6, verse 19, that do you have other gods beside God? Say, I do not testify as you do. There's only one God and I disown your idolatry. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one Khan that the followers of the Quran should be upholding. One book of law. And that's the Quran alone. And it continues in 620 and 21. It says, those to whom we have given the scripture recognize this as they recognize their own children. The ones who lose their souls are those who do not believe. Who is more evil than one who lies about God? or rejects his revelations, the transgressors never succeed. God willing, let's not get duped by their, their fancy jargon, all their Hadith sciences to try to convince you that these are legitimate uh, sources of uh, statements from the prophet. They're only conjecture, they're fabrications. They're the works of human and jinn devils and they're to be rejected. The only source of law we are to uphold is the Quran alone. And just like God has no partners, God's book has no partners. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, find other people who want to follow the Quran alone, who want to worship God alone, who want to eliminate idol worship from their religion, please join us on our Discord server. The invite link is below. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you want to research the verses, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. If you want notes from today's discussion, you can go to Quran Talk blog. There you can find notes from today's discussion as far as many articles on other topics. And if you want to get updates as far as what's going on, please follow me on Twitter. And until next time, peace and God bless.